This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. This is the Coast and Country download from the BBC. You can find the terms and conditions on our website at www.bbc.co.uk forward slash radio 4. Today you can hear Open Country with me, Helen Mark. I'm just walking into this really steep-sided valley. A lot of exposed rocks on either side of me. And I would be really in the very heart of the Peak District. We're just above the little town of Castleton. And you get this sense as you walk up into the valley as though you're disappearing into another world. There are a few sheep grazing. And this is a landscape in which you feel, gosh, you couldn't possibly be any further away from India. (laughs) And you're probably thinking, India, Peak District. Well, you know, for this week's Open Country, we have come to this landscape to find out how this place is connected with India and has been down through generations. And to find those hidden stories, I couldn't be with a better person than Shamu Kupuswami. You're a National Park Ranger, Shamu. Yeah. And... (laughs) <laughs> I wonder how you first came to discover the Peak District. Well, it was actually through the other National Park Rangers. I wanted to get out, away from Sheffield. I didn't grow up here, I grew up in India. I knew the university very well and I know a bit of the town of Sheffield well. But beyond that, it was knowing the land, the people, outside of my usual circle was just really, really important. And that's really where, you know, the National Parks sort of came in, because you get to know the National Parks actually can be accessed. You know, there are footpaths and there are no big dangerous animals. There's no tigers and elephants that lead to you up. (laughs) Which is obviously the experience you might have had from national reserves back home in India. That's true. I mean, national parks in India are all about, you know, perhaps safaris or going on elephant rides, but It's not about, you know, roaming freely or walking or you can never really be alone there or you can never really experience the National Park in India like you would here. When I first came out, it was just a whole new world. It was going to be navigation training. You know, I thought we were going to explore the footpaths, but then we went right into the moors and we were in the middle of ferns and we were in the middle of, you know, places where I didn't think we could actually walk or I thought I was going to sink in there. I went actually right into one of the... (laughs) bogs and I was sort of wet up to the knee and and the rest of the day was like that and I got back and I was like oh no (laughs) so yeah but I think all those experiences were really formative (laughs) learning about the National Park and then getting out here and having the confidence to do it all by myself which is what I do now and it was during that whole experience that you began to discover that there were connections between the Peak District and India and so in a way your mission has been to help other people learn and discover those. Shall we walk on a little bit? Yeah, sure. The only animals we have to worry about are a few grazing sheep. (laughs) So we know we're going to be fine. (laughs) I know, unless Uh. they then morph into elephants. (laughs) There's something deeper, I think, for you, isn't there, in terms of being part of a landscape like this and the philosophies within Hinduism. I think you're thinking of those sorts of things and bringing those to this landscape. Yes, yes, true. I mean, one of the things that we discovered was that, you know, some of the Hindu gurus actually looked at environment and nature as their teachers, as their only teachers, in fact. 
there's a list of living and non-living things that one of the uh, big Hindu teachers picked up and he talks about these as his gurus or his teachers. And in that, for example, he talks about the dove, he talks about the stream, he talks about rocks, and he says these are what teach you about what life actually is. So it's really that important, looking, learning, understanding, experiencing nature is the way in which you understand reality as far as Hinduism is concerned. And that's definitely something that I feel I can connect very well with. I sort of really think far and beyond the mundane and get very creative once I'm in a landscape like this. That's what's fascinated me, the fact that you can actually practically go out here, walk around and, you know, understand those texts that you've read about uh, in Hinduism Mm -hmm. in a very real way. (laughs) Here in the Peak District. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Actually, it's just brilliant because I devised this sort of walk called Elephant in the Park, which is like about a two-mile walk along the sort of Heritage Riverway um, from sort of Grindleford to Hathersage. And this is like a storytelling walk using the features of the national park, so the rivers, the wood, the, the open sort of landscape. Using those features, I was able to sort of illustrate and bring to life some of the stories about the Indian god Ganesh. And this was around the time when we had the Ganesh Festival, you know, the Hindu community celebrates Ganesh Festival in a big way in Sheffield. It's sort of a whole weekend of thing where we you know, have celebrations at the community centre, but then we also go up to the River Don and sort of immerse this Ganesha statue of the idol over there. So it's quite a big thing. So that's connecting the Indian, the Hindu community in particular, with this landscape. Yes. But as you travelled around more and more, you discovered that the connections were historical. Yeah. And that's what I would like you to take me around. Yeah, sure. I mean, we had to start somewhere. So uh, we've started with this small project called the British Raj in the Peak District, which has just worked really well because we've got these two big connections that we've made, which is the industrial connections and the sort of intellectual connections. Let's go and find out some more about those, shall we? Yeah, absolutely. Shamu and I have come down... Well, actually, we've crossed into Staffordshire, haven't we, Shamu? Uh, southwest from Castleton. We're obviously very high up because you can see all the field patterns here, how the land is being worked and farmed, and then the ridges that lie beyond that. And we're in a small village called Warslow, yeah. right at the top of the hill. And we're heading towards the little church, which is right in the centre of the village. This is such a very typical a peak district village, you know, quite compact, stone-built buildings. So I'm thinking to myself, India? Here? Where? How? So that's what we've come to discover. Absolutely. I wouldn't have thought as well if I hadn't, you know, heard from Brenda you must have the connections. Loved, yes, must have loved <laughs> making these discoveries. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Hello? Brenda? Hello. Hi, I've just come into the church and there are wooden benches, stained glass windows round us. It's really, really pretty. But you know what catches the eye? Draped over the back of the benches are the most exquisitely, vibrantly coloured pieces of silk in purples and tangerines and reds and greens. This is the very fabric of the connection between Warslow and India. 
And to help explain that, Brenda King, you're an historian, and we have Maggie Rowland. You live in the village of I live Warsaw. in the village, yeah. So, Brenda, the well, connection... It's magic, it's alchemy. You know, you get rough materials that have come to Staffordshire from India, uh, raw silk, which looks like string, and dye stuffs, which look very unpromising. And the river that flows through this landscape ends up in a leak and transforms it, or helps to transform it, with the minerals that are there from these hills. So we've got the rivers of the Peak District. Yes. We've got the silks and the dyes of India. Yes. But who, who is it that's bringing all this together? It's well, it's um, somebody called Thomas Wardle, ultimately Sir Thomas Wardle, who was a master dyer. He was born in Macclesfield, but he operated in Leek in Staffordshire. And he learned his dyeing skills from his father, who was a master dyer, very much as anyone would do on the Silk Road, the whole Silk Road that goes from Europe to China. And he specialised in uh, researching Indian dye stuffs and Indian wild silks. How did he, did he go there? He didn't go to India until afterwards, um, so he did it all by correspondence. And people, the um, High Commissioner for India in the 1870s organised whole boatloads of dye stuffs to come to Leek for Thomas Wardle to test it. And nobody had ever done it before. You mean plant materials? Heaps of plant materials. And his site in Leek was quite small and he couldn't store it all. It became a problem. But he became engrossed and engrossed in transforming tussle silk. And he was the first person um, to ever do it, even though Indian dyers were noted as the best in the world. See, when we think of um, things like this, normally it's an exploitative thing. But I don't think that was happening with Wardle. No, you're absolutely right. It was symbiotic. And he actually managed to help India develop its export trade in um, wild silks. So because of Thomas Wardle, who learned how to dye it and then print on it, he then expanded the market. Uh, so the exports to Europe went through the roof, basically. And when Wardle, he was a dye chemist, and when he learned to analyse uh, India's dyes and silks, he sent all his knowledge back to India. So it was an exchange of skills and knowledge, yeah. an equal sharing? Yes, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And then he went to India, he physically saw for himself. Yes, he did. Brought those things back to this country. Yes, he did, yeah. And what impressed me so much was that he didn't just work with designers and artists, he worked with the ordinary people. He arranged meetings with the village people who were working on silk. He asked them, what are your problems? What are your difficulties? And he came up with solutions He was concerned about a woman who was sitting on the floor to reel the silk, and he devised a a way through better technology that she would have a more comfortable life and that her daughter after her would have a better life too and that by producing better quality silk, they would improve their standard of living. I just want to meet this man. I want to. (laughs) 
I patted his gravestone and said, we're going to do you justice one day. (laughs) When we're with Shamu and going through the Peak District and we're looking at ways in which these stories have been hidden in this landscape. Yes. When I started out, I was thinking, these are stories for the Indian community that Shamu is so keen Mm -hmm. to visit here. But you know, they're not. I want to know these stories as much as anybody. They're as much a story of my heritage as they are of many other community. Yes. And I see it now so clearly. Yeah, this is great, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's exactly what it is. I think, you know, um, having sort of grown up in India and now living here, it's difficult for me to separate all of this. And the only way I can make sense of it is by looking at it as our heritage. Yes. I think yes, absolutely. it's just amazing. And the fact that we've been able to do this through the National Park and yes, through, uh, you know, through the Who'd have thought services. it? Yes, exactly. <laughs> I, mean, I love the fact you can look over this landscape and see the like, natural stone buildings, but you know now they inside some of them are nestling these fabulous, fabulous examples of India's heritage. It's fantastic juxtaposition. This bundle of silk threads in all their jewel-like colours that mm-hmm. you are cradling in your hands. I, <laughs> I mean, I can see on your face how much you adore these. That thread mm. ties us from here. You could take one end, yeah. takes us all the way to India. It does, the other end. doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yes. In a simple thread. A simple thread, Yes. The thing is, Shamu, that it would be fair to say that people from ethnic minorities do not, for the most part, access the countryside. Yes. Yes. So in a small way, what you're doing is help break down those barriers. But still, there's an awful lot of people who just just never see places like this, never think to come to places like this, don't feel they can come to places like this. I think there's still a lot of people, even people sort of that I know, that, that don't come out. It could be anything from, it's just not the right weather, and then it's never the right weather. <laughs> Sometimes it's about, I wouldn't have a place to go and have lunch because it might not necessarily sort of cater to the uh, uh, specifications that I have, like, mm-hmm. you know, particular vegetarian and all that. I must say that that's not also been very easy for me, but, you know, uh, you work around that. Oh, the other thing is also gear. Because, uh, first of all, having come from south of India, where it's almost permanently a certain temperature, we don't really have varying seasons. We never have anything like the winter we have here. All the winters are very hard in the north of India. So it's about how do you dress and how do you keep warm and be comfortable suitably. And that actually is not as easy as you think. You know, you don't know where to start. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, I remember when I was first training as a ranger, I mean, everyone else had uh, been walking for, I don't know, 10, 15, 20, 30 years. Because they're all all from here and definitely have had much more walking experience than I have. And um, I had to keep asking people about, well, you know, where would I get that? Where would I get this? How would I wear that? What would I wear? (laughs) We just take so much for granted. Yes, exactly, exactly. Even now, when I get groups out from the Indian community, you know, it's very difficult to get the uh, group wearing the right type of shoes for the right type of thing (laughs) and again you know I've got used to boots now but the very first chance I get I'm much more comfortable barefoot so I've been looking up things like you know barefoot walking we have barefoot walking in even the pig district and if I'm hardy enough and when I'm hardy enough that's what I want to aspire to do
Our next destination, Shamu, we've come to a very small little village. We've come here to Miltop, which is uh, not far from Sheffield, just outside the boundary of the National Park. So, you know, Big Moor and all that, and then you can come off into this little hamlet of uh, Miltop. And we've come here particularly to meet Rone Robinson and Sally Goldsmith because there is another one of these wonderful hidden connections with India in this place <laughs> and you can help us reveal that <laughs> so we're going to we're in the sort of the main thoroughfares at the main road can we take a little wander down yes. i think this is called mill lane that looks interesting yes and in this case it's an individual that's brought us here isn't it that's right edward carpenter who was the sort of sexy sage of Milthorpe. I think he was called at one time. Wow. But I don't think he would have liked to have been called that. I heard um, Saint in Sandals. <laughs> I've heard all sorts of things about him. We're just going down past where, in, in his day, because he was everything. He was a nudist and he was a vegetarian. He was an anti-vivisectionist. He also wrote lots of poems and all sorts of stuff. But when he came to Milthorpe to live, he ran a sort of theatre group in that barn over there and he put on a production of St George and the Dragon was their greatest hit and his boyfriend played the cat and he, he, he kind of negotiated it all but there is an old barn in which Carpenter did his plays inches from where we're walking down this wonderful lane towards the river Yeah, we don't want to make fun of him too no, much because although he was all those things he was a socialist and a writer and a sort of agitator and these days is remembered really because he was one of the first people to write about homosexuality and gay rights and so he's rightly honoured by a lot of people for that and the interesting thing about Millthorpe is lots and lots of people came here all the famous writers of the day George Bernard Shaw, Havelock Ellis, Forster, E.M. Forster and also lots of working-class uh, people as well. So he says, you know, that it's really funny, you're sort of aristocrats and writers mixed with ploughboys, you know. <laughs> so he was a colourful character, mm. right? Very yeah. colourful. Yes, he, he invented his own dress, so sometimes he, he, he wore sandals, crucially, which he was very influential, and that is the Indian connection partly One as well. Yeah. One of them. But he also made dress reform. He, he made kind of a smock that he wore as well. The interesting thing in meeting Chamu and her group is that we knew very little about the Indian connections. So when we heard that Chamu was doing it, it was great. We knew about the Indian sandals, we knew he'd learned to meditate, we knew he had an Indian friend, but we didn't know anything more, really. How should we describe what that special Indian connection was? His very close friend, who was uh, from Sri Lanka, but he was a Tamil from Sri Lanka who travelled very often to the southern part of India, this fellow was called Ponambalam Arunachalam, and a whole vad of his letters is what we found in the Sheffield archives. They used to study together at, I think Carpenter studied at Cambridge, didn't yeah, he? Yeah, I did, yeah. Yeah, so uh, P. Arunachalam and Carpenter were classmates, and they kept in touch since. And then Carpenter sort of visited uh, Sri Lanka, and then they went to India and did this whole sort of uh, trip. And I think... From what we read, uh, he got very, very interested in, the, uh, in Hindu philosophy and went along with his friend Arunachalam to his guru, uh, Tillainadhan Swami, 
and he's written a couple of chapters about what he uh, discovered from the guru about Hinduism in this book called Adam Speak to Elephanta. Mm-hmm. Wow. Goodness knows what you might find about connections between yeah. an India and a landscape in the Peak District National Park. No, exactly. Uh, I mean, we found, uh, I think, the first ever translation from Bengali to English of the Nobel Prize winning uh, poem by uh, Rabindranath Tagore, Gitanjali, was actually sent to Carpenter with this sort of letter saying, here's a poet who's really good, so Carpenter, can you sort of promote him here if you like his poetry? And there's a lot of sort of nature poetry there which, you know, deeply connected to us who are interested in the national park and the sort of environmental values that go with it. You feel then this discovery of this connection with India is a good part to add to his story. It it is wonderful for the project, but for Edward Carpenter... Yeah, because he, you know, he appeals to so many people and we've given talks and things and along come, you know... A lot of gay men, because he's really important to them. A lot of Sheffield socialists, walkers, vegetarians, all sorts of people. But now there's this whole other constituency, you know, that we we haven't tapped, really. We've walked down a steep bank to the water's edge, Shamu. Where exactly are we as I look across this magnificent reservoir? Yeah, we're actually in the upper Durban Valley at the moment. Well, as you can see, it's absolutely tranquil. It's one of the favourite spots, I think, of a lot of people I know uh, from the Indian community. And we've come walking here, we've come cycling, we've done mountain biking here. It's a favourite area. And our landscape is reflected immaculately in the water, which is so still. The shapes and the colours, the very, you know, the, <laughs> the, the trees, you can see them upside down in the water. And it's such a perfect place to meet up with Udi Nayar and Pallavi Singh. So you've been doing this, you've been coming out into the countryside, so what do you feel it gives to you? I would say Peak District is, it doesn't matter where you are from in this world, it's nature at the end of the day. And nature does not bifurcate people in any way whatsoever. So I would say Peak District, where you come here, you just feel a part of it, whether you are from around here or not. That's the beauty of this place. I mean, you look around, we got to see reflections. And reflections, it doesn't show only to people who are from Britain. It shows to everyone. It doesn't matter where you're from. So it does show that connection to a very large extent. It, it touches you at a very spiritual level. Well, did you, let's say, access the countryside in India? No. I came from a city. So <laughs> the countryside for us was a couple of mangroves. That's all. Mm. Nothing more than that. We had a... We had a lot of buildings to stop it from coming out. <laughs> so I came from the city of Mumbai and it's too crowded for poor plants to survive. <laughs> so, so seeing these open spaces yes. and knowing that you could walk them round reservoirs, up hills, down dales, you could do that here. That's right. Yes, yeah. definitely. We can do it right now. And it's kind yeah. of like... Um, 20 minutes from our place where we stay so you just go to the bus station and take a bus and you are in the nature that's the beauty of Sheffield actually yes that's that's the beauty so of Sheffield so close to the yes. countryside yeah. I'm sure we are one of those people who kind of came out and looking at us many more came out to look at Peak District 
that has been because we we come here we take pictures we put it on facebook then we get inquiries about where is this on peak district so we kind of started saying oh this is this place this is edale this is castleton this is bakewell this is bradwell so mm-hmm. when we started saying all these things more people became curious to From come out within the indian community within, within the indian community yes yeah you see i'm with you here listening to you knowing that you are students mm-hmm. But, Shamu, is it a different story for families who've been here maybe two to three generations? Yeah, that's uh, what I believe from my experience. I think uh, when we talk about the Indian community, we're talking about different sections. Some studies show that Peak District being surrounded by uh, cities where there's a a good density of population of ethnic minorities and also the Indian community, they sort of make up, I think, about 10% of the population. But I think less than 1% of the users of the National Park actually come from these communities. So that sort of proportion is, yeah, it's a sort of disproportion, isn't it? Yes. And that's what, I mean, you want to change. You want people, yes. everyone, to feel that these places yes. are, are for them and the stories that we've discovered and the places that we've seen and the people that we've met. I think it's just that is that bit of nudge that you need, which will then sort of become a flood, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.